Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? For the here and now, I, I want to start selling out Salah Stadium before we, we kind of jump ship off the Aviva. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Very welcome along. It is Owen sitting in on the Sunday papers for Joe this week. We've got Kieran O'Rahlig and Timmy McCarthy with us for the next little while. Let's firstly give you a flavour of what's on the back pages and the front pages of the sports supplements this morning. The Sunday Times first off leads with that match in the Gaelic grounds last night. A fight to the end. All-Ireland champions Limerick hold off late Waterford rally. A couple of other very interesting stories here in the front of the Sunday Times sports section. Lingard in disaster gaff as Manchester United lose again. This is essentially Paul Scholes breaking ranks on zone, where he paraphrased what Jesse Lingard told him, referring to the dressing room at Manchester United as a disaster. Uh, he says, uh, Jesse probably wouldn't mind me saying that uh, he called it a disaster, but I'd say Jesse Lingard probably does mind quite a bit uh, Paul Scholes saying that. We will be getting into that in much more detail in just a few moments. The other story loosely linked with Manchester United is that uh, Manchester United legend Roy Keane is interested in taking over at Hibs. So he's emerged as a potential surprise successor to Sean Maloney, who was sacked last week as Hibernian manager. Again, we'll come back to that in just a moment. So that's the back of the Sunday Times or the front of their sports section. The Sunday World leads with Manchester United. United top of the flops. Rangnick admits top four spot gone as Ten Hag faces huge task. Meanwhile, looking ahead to the Merseyside derby today. Klopp, we're on for four. Pool boss out to bash Everton today. The Sun on Sunday goes with four gone conclusion. Rangnick gives up on Champions League bid. Meanwhile, City's hero Gabriel set to leave Etihad. This is a story that emerged earlier in the week that Gabriel Jesus could be on the way out. Arsenal amongst the clubs uh, being linked with Gabriel Jesus, obviously played amazingly well yesterday for City. And feeling the lynch now is their headline on Waterford against Limerick. Ian Lynch pulling up an early hamstring injury in that game last night. The Sunday Mirror leads with Damned United. Angry Rangnick set to name and shame in player report. Ralph says top four is over for us as Max says big issues here and Jürgen says show us respect. Uh, He says that the team may not get the respect they deserve if they fail to turn their brilliance into trophies. The Irish Mail on Sunday then totally rotten is their back page headline of Manchester United. McTominay's damning admission about United as they are humbled again and Limerick show the grit of champions is their headline on Limerick 30 points, Waterford 221. And it is those two stories that dominate finally on the front page of the Irish or the Sunday independent sports section. United's dressing room is a disaster. Scholes reveals Lingard admission as a crisis deepens and Limerick stand tall is the headline there with a photograph of Sean Finn on the front page. Champions show their mettle to survive stern Waterford test. As I say, Kieran and Timmy are with us. Lads, how are you getting on? Good. You? Good, thanks. Uh, Timmy, we might just kick that to you first off. Limerick standing tall last night. They were up against it in the last few minutes with those couple of late Waterford goals, but it does show that perhaps there's still a, a significant enough gulf between these teams when you consider the players that Limerick were missing and had to do it out at the end of the match last night. It was a tour de force performance by Limerick in reality. I mean, 30 points, you know, if you think about 30 scores, like, there's a lot of scores to get in, in, in a GM match, in a hurling match. And, you know, I just thought throughout the game, they were comfortable, they were they were in control. The late goals, obviously, you know, the two goals bring water right back into it. But they responded. And that's what champions do when they're under pressure. They had injury issues coming into the game. They had injury issues in the game. But champions have a way of, of responding when it gets tough. And right now, they're the team to beat. There was no doubts in that, that Limerick got the team to beat. Uh, it won't be a foregone conclusion. They, they, you know, they'll, they'll be hard to beat. But I think that, you know, going Kilkenny, you know, on the on the other side of it, you know, are potential, you know, challenges for them that, that, that they could succumb to on, a, on any given day. But I just thought last night that the gulf between Limerick and Waterford was, was evident right throughout the game until those two last goals. Mm. And their response to the two goals, again, highlighted the gulf. Waterford have had a great league campaign. Um, got it. Got a win over Tip last week and dug deep for that. But yesterday it was a big test, and you know they they came up short in reality. Where Limerick, you know, despite all the challenges, were very impressive. And they often say that the losers learn the most in these sorts of encounters. But Limerick learned a hell of a lot about themselves yesterday. It seemed because they were pushed into that position. That early key and Lynch injury is not what John Kiley 
would have wanted. He could have planned for life without Kyle Hayes yesterday, but he wouldn't have been planning for a life without Keane Lynch. It turns out Kyle O'Neill is a, a bit of a baller himself and they've got depth in the best hurling county in Ireland at the moment. And I've always believed you learn from both victories and defeats. You know, one of the things that dangerous for, for coaches or managers is to ignore what has happened in a victory. You know, so Limerick seem to have that, you know, mm. that mindset that they learn whether they win a game or lose a game in that sense. I mean, so I think Limerick will take a lot from us. I think they will realise, you know, that you know, they still need to get goals. You know, goals do, you know, and they've shown us, I mean, like last year in the All-Ireland Final against Mike County Cup, their ability to get goals. But I what was really impressive last night without any goal. You know, they still won the game, you know, comfortably without the you know the, the two goals. Uh, but throughout they were comfortable, I felt, uh, right through. So they, they'll have learned a lot. Water will have learned a lot. Um, but I think that Limerick have, you know, are the, are the standout team right now. And you think about the disastrous league campaign they had on, and yet, you know, two games into the championship, and they've blown away the two big rivals, you know, that were people were talking of Cork. They blew away last week and water for last night. But what's the the wound licking been like in Cork over the last week? <laughs> well, I think I, I think in Cork, I think I, I felt last year. I really felt last year in the final we could have won it. But what we didn't do, and you know, we didn't do it last Sunday again. We've got to ma- we've got to deal with their aggression, and then we can beat them with our skill. We've got to use is that we're good at we're we're quick we're pacey. So we got to use the pitch. You know, we got to make the pitch as big as possible. For us to compete, you know, with, with the likes of Limerick, who are physically bigger than us. But if you if you if you make the pitch smaller, then you you play into the hands of, of the more physical teams. And I just think that Cork will have to learn to deal with the aggression. And when I when I mean deal with it, I don't mean react to it. I don't mean get involved in it. I just mean be man enough to take it, and then create the space to to um to have a chance to win the game. So defeating Cork this week was one of uh, of, of disappointment. Mm. You know, real disappointment. I mean, there's two big defeats. So, Water from the league final and, and Limerick, obviously, in the championship. And uh, it's Cork of a long way to go to recover. Long way to go now to recover. They certainly do. Week off this week. Um, we'll come back to the GEA in a little while. There's some great writing across the papers. But we do need to move on to, to Manchester United because it does seem like the other big story when you look through the back pages. United's dressing room is a disaster, as I've just mentioned, uh, is the headline on the Sunday Independent. What's really interesting, Kieran, is just the level of soap opera that even yesterday in isolation gave us. So uh, people in this part of the world wouldn't have been watching Paul Scholes on DAZN, but he was working as a pundit for DAZN yesterday. And he says, it is an absolute mess. I had a quick chat with Jesse the other day, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that the dressing room is just a disaster. This was put to, to Ralph Raniak afterwards, and he says, I think the whole group gets unreasonable with each other. I'm not daring to say they got on well with each other, but I don't say there being an issue with regard to the atmosphere in the dressing room. But then you had McTominay coming out yesterday saying, there's a whole load of problems in terms of players, staff, everything higher up. It seems, Kieran, at this point that every single week is just giving extraordinary new public detail about how the players feel and how the management feel about what's going on at this football club. Yeah, there's a real atmosphere of um, just being, you're just, just accepting that things are going to go wrong, that there's no way out of it this year. It's very, they're very resigned to defeat. They're very resigned to negativity. Um, so much, yeah, just even in that, like, uh, Paul Scold saying, I had a quick chat with Jesse and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, I mean, that just baffles me a little bit. I'm not, I'm not sure if Jesse really wouldn't mind Paul going out and recounting his private conversation to, to the, to the TV. Um, and then McTominay, as you said there, he says about, we have a lot of problems in terms of players, staff, everything higher up. So he's thrown everybody under the bus. Um, and then later on, he says, um, for us, when you get back in the dressing room, it's go home and take a look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, which isn't the dressing room, but anyhow, um, for us, self-belief, lack of confidence, you can see it all in the last two months, which has been coming. We had a half-decent game today, but even then it is the belief. It's just not there at the minute. Um, and then Ragnick comes out and says it's not realistic to dream and speak about the top four. So everything is just pointing downwards. It's all negative. It's all, you know, giving themselves excuses that there's no way out of this. Uh, it just cannot get any better. Um, so you'd wonder about... Eric Den Haag waking up in, in Amsterdam this morning and, and, and seeing these headlines and, and hearing, you know, ex-players speaking with current players, coaches speaking out the way they are. I mean, it's probably unlikely that they'll get to the top four, but I mean, have you, has anybody looked at the last, has Ragnick looked at the last few games? Nobody wants to finish in fourth place, it seems. You know, Arsenal all over the place, um, United Spurs drawing with Brentford. Um, 
it's it's just unlikely to see it's unusual to see a coach come out and not say look we'll leave it until it's mathematically impossible we, we have four or five games the other guys are slipping up it can go anywhere like they're six points behind but um it's not impossible but again it's just the negativity and they're all just re- resigned to that fact and um yeah i think i was sat chatting to timmy just a little bit before we come on like timmy's a chelsea fan knows about the cycles that clubs go through I'm a Celtic fan. I've seen ups and downs in 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 the, in the the lifetime of of being a supporter. And the, this Man United thing. I mean, it's all in the shadow of Ferguson, and it's it's almost like that entitlement that some of the fans and the followers see, and and especially the players. The players who played under Ferguson are really struggling to come to terms with seeing this club in the context they they now exist. You know, Roy Keane says this is Man United, and, and like there's a lot of talk of this is Man United, and this should be this, and a player should be that, and that's not a Man United player. But what is that? Like every club has to reallocate their beliefs when things change, and United have been, you know, in this a good few years now. And you know, I think there's a, a, a kind of a funny ad sent around on Twitter yesterday. It was uh, some betting company, and it's like a guy who's acting as a counselor trying to treat guys who were Man United fans in the '90s and trying to get them to deal with this um, trauma and say, lads, look, we have to stop thinking about Blur and Oasis being number one at the top of the charts. There are different <laughs> bands there now. And then saying, look, you know, if you have a sign a player, he doesn't do well, and he's trying to force them to, to rewire their brains and say, well, actually, it's probably acceptable. We shouldn't be in the top four every season, you know. And that's like what a lot of Man United fans and ex-players need to do uh, and deal with. And there's a lot of analysis through the papers about how that'll happen now going forward. There's a new impressive coach coming through. I think what Ten Hag did, like I think the Ajax performance in in um, in the Bernabeu in 2019 was one of the best I've seen and like full of young players, full of homegrown talent. And if he gets support and the guys at the top in Man United get it together, which seems to be where the biggest problem is, then it'll be interesting to see, but there's no guarantee. Just, just like Timmy with Chelsea next season, God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> You'll have to get a season ticket to me if you want to get in the door at Stamford Bridge. Uh, the situation yeah. with um, with for, like the, the comparison you made with Ferguson and kind of the, the theme of Alex Ferguson is something that David Walsh explores on page four and five of the Sunday Times Sports section today. He, he starts by comparing it to uh, Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers. And he says, why should the Packers have gone through their dark age after Lombardi left? And the same thing happened at United after Ferguson called it today, mostly because the dynasties were built on the vision and drive of one man. They led in the organisation followed. They left in the organisations they left were leaderless. And I do wonder if Manchester United are still married to that idea of the, the one person vision that a manager can come in and impose his vision on a team and that will fix everything. That is why they've hopped from manager to manager to manager and that might give you a little bit of concern that, you know, Ten Hag will be the silver bullet for all of Manchester United's problems, even though you've got someone as intelligent as Ralph Ranić sitting there every week and saying, guys, this thing is a hell of a lot deeper than just a manager. I was very surprised by some of the comments after yesterday's game. Right? Obviously, the Paul scores one. You know, and you take Kieran's point, you have a lot of former players who played in the United Golden Era of our lifetime, because obviously in their Champions European Cup in 68, they would see it as a golden era. But the, the, the 20 years of the Premiership where they dominated the Premiership, um, you know, the players of that era are looking out at the current crop and saying, you know, that is they're not doing what we did, they don't have the passion, they don't have the pride, and that says, But for it to come out, like for McConaughey to come out and for you know Jesse Lingard to be quoted on, you know internationally. You know, is really unusual in, in that sense. The biggest thing for me was Ragnick saying, we're not going to make the top four. They're four games to go, they're six points behind, as Kieran said. But it's not mathematically impossible. I mean, you know, it's just, I've never heard a manager uh, who are hanging about something saying, we're out of it. I mean, just, you know, even Kevin Keegan in that infamous uh, TV outburst many years ago, you know, believed that, you know, they still had a chance that United had to go to Leeds, I think it was, and, you know, and get a result. And, you know, they didn't get it, obviously, at the time, um, that for Newcastle fans. So I'm really surprised at what's going on in United in the sense of within the dressing room. And, you know, it just seems to be toxic. And, you know, they're not playing for each other. I mean, you know, Paul McGrandis on the world, I mean, basically talked about their performance against Liverpool and said, if you had Bruce Robson or Keane, you know, they kick somebody just to, you know, so they're not playing for each other. They're not, they don't look, they don't look united as, as a group of people. Uh, on a good day, it's always easy. I mean, they have a huge amount of talent. They've spent a huge amount of money. So on a good day, United will always blossom because of the talent of the players. But you're not tested until you have tough days. And that, you know, we talked with Limerick earlier on about, you know, it got tough last night and they responded. 
when it's got tough United at any point in time this season, when the real pressure came on, they have collapsed. I was saying I use for my clients, my business, under pressure, we do what comes naturally. And this United crop of people naturally fall under pressure. That's just the reality of what this current crop of people have become. And when that happens, they then look for scapegoats. And, and the comments that are coming out, yesterday from McConaughey, from Jesse Lingard, from Paul Scholes, who's not involved in from Ragnick, just highlights the fact that they're disjointed. Okay, they're not playing together. They're not playing to the best of their talent individually. The amount of stars getting injured. I mean, Pogba has spent most of the season and you know injured. The amount is always an indicator too. Of, you know, if you if you contrast, we would say with City or Liverpool, who are at the top of the three at the moment, they have very few injuries in, in, in that sense. So I just think that the, it just is a toxic environment. And for Ten Hag coming in, you know, I mean, you made a point here on about his Barcelona victory that night in the, in the uh, or in the Real Madrid victory, was it? Yeah, the Real Madrid victory and. Um, but the culture of football in Ajax is very different than the culture of football in England. You know, just taking England first of all, okay? And then obviously, even though United, you know, fans might think that they, they have the same style of football as Ajax have, they don't. Ajax have a very different culture from underage, bringing out these young players right through to, you know, to seniors. So when you go from then the commentary of say, oh, and about the toxicity that went down, right, into the rest of the newspaper, which is all about Ten Hag and, you know, one of his lines he says, like, is that um, in, in a piece by Ian Herbert um, on the Mail on Sunday, I'll make egos fall into line. I mean, that's a really unusual statement to have to come out before you have the job, like, okay? Because yeah. everybody's egos, it's just how you have to manage them. But I'm not sure falling into line would be the, the ideal way for me if I was going to go to a new team to say, I'm going to make them fall into line. I might say, we have to control our egos and manage our egos. So he's got a big task. And what I don't like for him is, they're talking about giving him long time, a long time. United fans want success. They want to re- recover. So, you know, nobody's got a long time since Fergie has went. And, you know, it's it's hard to see if United don't have the success, okay, in, in a medium period of time, that Ten Hag won't suffer the same fate that the last mm. five or six days. And, and that is the constant contradiction that's always existed post-Ferguson. The, the constant, this constant stat that it's been, you know, seven years between uh, Alex Ferguson taking over the reins and actually getting his first trophy and getting things up and running at Manchester United. And uh, because of the shadow that he's left at the club, in a positive sense, obviously, that other managers just simply will not get the time that he got. Uh, Kieran, there's been a, a couple of other interesting football nuggets, especially in the Sunday Times this morning. Yeah, I presume we're talking about the Roy Keane one. Yeah, Roy Keane and, yeah. and, and also uh, Paul Rowan inside as well. Oh, sorry, yeah, of course, yeah. So the Roy Keane one stood out to me partly because it's on the front page and it's unusual to see Roy Keane on the front page without it being accompanied by some sort of a scathing quote that he sent out. Um, but I'm actually very excited about this one. Um, a personal level, just because I'm a Celtic fan, to see somebody like him maybe coming up at Hibs. I mean, Sean Maloney was in there. He got 120 days um, who he promised, you know, attractive, inventive football. He was a coach with Belgium, so he pity Sean Maloney, like former Celtic Aston Villa player. He left Belgium in in January, February time, uh, with a World Cup on the horizon, and um, he goes there and he's he's dumped after 120 days. But Roy Keane is a potential successor. Um, so Hibs, which could be interesting, tapping into the Irish history of the club there as well. Uh, he's had a couple of kind of false starts in terms of rumours of him being linked with Sunderland and and other clubs and um like i think he's he's wonderful on tv he really is most of the time like it's just it's just box office stuff really even on instagram you, the stuff that you never thought you'd see roy Keane doing he's, he's been excelled excelling at it but i'd love to see him back in the dugout somewhere and it would be interesting if it was something like this it's almost it's a bit of a, a curious one that you could imagine roy Keane even becoming hibbs manager um i know the owner is very wealthy they don't spend a lot of money, so it's a bit of a tough one in terms of that. Um, the, the the owner there is a guy called Ron Ron Gordon, and he's um, a former tech billionaire. Actually worked with Harry, so you can kind of tell his age there. He might fit into the old school with, uh, with Roy, but he does say we need a manager with some experience. That doesn't need to be somebody who's old with loads of experience, but we need a manager who can lead. Um, and we are still looking to play an innovative, modern and attacking style of play. So don't quite know if Roy will be the perfect fit there, but it was just, it's interesting to see his name back out there eventually. And um, I don't know, would we all prefer to see him back in the dugout or stay on TV? It's a tough one um, because he's been so entertaining. I know a lot of websites would like him to stay in the, in the press box. Uh, 
And then inside on the Sunday Times, Paul Rowan, who seems to have a direct line to whoever takes the minutes at FEI meetings, um, has something that got back to 2018 um, of an FAI board meeting. And this, this, again, shows a little bit more about Roy Keane and questions about how and why he would get a managerial role in the current era. Um, so we know most of us, I'd imagine, know the, the story of Stephen Ward, um, you know, giving a WhatsApp voice message to a friend recounting um, an incident that happened in the Ireland camp between Roy Keane, um, Harry Arthur and John Walters. That a bit of a scrap, um, you know, Ward <laughs> described how Walters threatened to fight Roy Keane and had his peace offerings rebuffed and Arthur walked out of the room, out of the treatment room at the team hotel after being subjected to a barrage of Keane's trademark invective. That's how Paul Rowan said it. So th- apparently then this came up at the 2018 FAI board meeting. And um, there was some fear that this may have led to Declan Rice um, leaving the Ireland setup, which looks now, and I mean, I'm looking through f- other pages here and they're all talking about where Declan Rice might end up this summer. Is it Man United? Is it Chelsea? Is it somewhere else? And, uh, you know, you have to look back and think, I, I mean, I thought he was nailed on. He played the three senior games. We have to look back and see if this is, or if there's any kind of question that this was part of the problem. It's it's one of the biggest um, mistakes in the FAI's recent history because Declan Rice is obviously, imagine he was playing for Ireland now, um, be an absolute superstar um, for us. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the minutes came out then and, and John Delaney, who was then the chief executive, um, told the board that he had a, a meeting with O'Neill and Keane and he had delivered the message to resolve the issues and get on with the game. Uh, and then when talking to the press, O'Neill should, quote, let them know who the manager is. So there was still a bit of um, controversy there and Roy was thinking of going legal on Stephen Ward, which was an interesting um, tidbit. And Martin told him he's wasting his time. So eventually then in November, um, another meeting, Delaney said that the board had lost confidence on O'Neill, even though he's the third most successful manager Ireland ever had. Um, and then, yeah, so the, the, the board spoke positively of uh, Stephen Ward in all this, but it seems that that may, may have been the straw that broke the camel's back with the FAI. And you'd wonder, with this coming out now again, will it harm Keane? Will other you know clubs potentially looking to see um, they, obviously, they have their own ways of finding out what goes on in, in the Ireland camp and whatever else. But mm. I, I, it's another thing that just doesn't look well for Keane in the modern era. And um, you'd wonder if the Hibs, Hibs uh, owner has looked into this. Yeah, it definitely feels like that was one of the moments that people will use as a, as a stick to beat Roy Keane with uh, to, to, to suggest that maybe in the modern game his methods aren't uh, suitable, I guess, to, to use that phrase. But I think, as you say, uh, a lot of websites would be sad if Roy Keane leads the Sky Sports studio. But then on the flip side, there is every single pre-match press conference at Roy Keane, every single post-match press conference at Roy Keane. I think regardless of where Roy Keane is, if he, as long as he doesn't uh, hide in a cave, he will be in the headlines in some shape or form. And he will always be a compelling story. And I think Hibs would be a fascinating one if he, if he went up to Scotland there. Um, we spent a lot of time on, on the footballer. That's the Sunday Times, if you want to check that out. Uh, Paul Rowan with those new details there. We just want to quickly move on to uh, the golf and for anybody who read the Sunday Independent last week they'll have read part one of Paul Kimmage's interview with Shane Lowry part two is published this week it's on page 11, 12, 13 and 14 Offaly star revels in his status amongst golf City but is not losing sight of his career goals the life of Lowry is the headline on this Kimmage piece and to me it's a really interesting insight into his mindset in terms of the appreciation of where he has got to in his career, the sort of mentality he had on the final day in Port Rush, even the sort of self-belief that he has getting that wild card into the Ryder Cup team last year. There's plenty of nuggets scattered around this piece. Yeah, I really enjoyed the piece, I must say, and I thought it, it really delved into Shane Lowry's mindset at different points, okay? So at the, in the first page of it, you know, they talk about him being in Pebble Beach and in... Um, Having a before the Pebble Beach program, he was in the Monterey Peninsula Country Club uh, with Roger Harrington and their two caddies. And he's he's he was he sat down after night and had a menu, picked sat in the chair, gazed over the links and said, "Jesus, lads, where did it all go wrong?" And I just thought that line actually summed up the appreciation that Shane Laurie has for where he has come from to where he actually has got to in that sense, because it's probably unlikely that. Most other pros in any sport would say that I can't. You know, we can't say no other sport, but it's very unlikely, uh, and particularly in golf. I, I thought so. I just thought to myself, you know, here's a guy at that point. I had won, you know, a, um, an Irish Open um, in Port Rush, and still was humble enough to actually, you know, 
just you know not take for granted what I've, what what has happened. So that really impressed me. The other thing that was fascinating was the the, the Scotty Scheffler um, reference to Scheffler's admittance bef- the, the night uh, after round three of the Masters and the morning of the Masters. Uh, you know, in the morning he and the night before he said he was fine, but on the morning he cried. He couldn't stop crying and. You know, his wife basically said, look, you know, you're not defined by golf. You're defined by the man you are in that sense. Right? Okay. No, sometimes that's easy to say because if he went out and lost the lead, you know, there might have been a different view. But she was really, you know, supporting him as best she could in, in the circumstances. And then Shane Laurie went on to talk about the Port Rush situation for him. And he said that um, he couldn't sleep the night before. He said... Um, I don't think I ate uh, any food for, for, for the day. Bo, his caddy, kept saying to me, must eat, you're going to get sick. And uh, you have to do something. He said, I can't, I'm going to get sick. For me, it was all about, what if I don't win? And I thought this was a fascinating part. He, his quote is saying, what if I don't win? It wasn't what if I do, it was what if I don't. I'm not sure how long it would take me to get over it if I hadn't won that day. And he talked about his coach coming in, Neil Manship, and uh, I have no choice but to win today. So... To me, reading that, it was fear was driving the fear of losing, rather than you know the the performance of you know performing in that sense. And when I'm coaching teams, I talk about don't be afraid to lose or get preoccupied with winning. Just perform. And if in my experience, if you perform to your best, you'll get the results if you're talented enough most of the time. I thought that was fascinating. That would not that really jumped off the page that he was afraid of not winning. And it was basically, that wasn't what drove him to perform in the day, because if we remember the day, it was a very bad day, and Tommy Fleetwood kind of gave him a bit of a gap early on. But I thought that was, you know, um, you know. and then he said, what did he say to you? And he, he, he said, I can't remember what Neil Manship said. He says, and what about Wendy? So it just sort of highlighted that here's a guy who comes across as a very humble, decent, ordinary guy who is playing at the highest echelons in professional sport, is earning vast sums of money for his performances on the course and off the course, and yet is a decent guy. And that's what I loved about, you know, what it did on it. it. It encapsulated, you know, his mindset, you know, appreciating where he's come from from Clara. It encapsulated, you know, the, the, the openness that he has as, as, as a sports person. And then his mindset in the biggest day of his professional career to date in, in trying to win the Clara job at Fort Rush. And, um, and he talks about his his family and and you know he talks a lot about that and his, his children and stuff. So I loved it. I really loved it because I got the impression it's Shane Laurie. That was to me, you know, this is Shane Laurie. That was the impression I got in reading this. You know, because sometimes yeah. you read pieces and you say, is it Shane Laurie or is it a bit of PR spin? I got the impression this was Shane Laurie. It definitely felt that way, and it's just fascinating that psychology of being a leader on the final day of a major and just how it seems like a completely different world to even just being a couple of shots back because in part one he talks about the morning of the Masters this year watching Burnley against Crystal Palace I think it was going over to his dad's house having a coffee I'd say it's a matter of a difference of a, of a few shots but I suspect that were he to be in the lead in, or in Scheffler's position this year he would have also felt the same sort of nerves the sense of being able to uh, in, within shooting distance of putting on that first ever green jacket and just because he was the chaser rather than the leader that psychology seems anyway from Scheffler's perspective and from Larry's perspective just worlds apart which is really really interesting uh, Kieran, what stuck out to you from this piece? I just have a quick question for you lads actually because I, I didn't see the first part of this did he talk about how he's, his mental state was going into the, the fourth round of the Masters because I, I think the first part of this last week talked about that did, did that come up? There was definitely more chat about the, the Masters last week than there is this week that's the, the whole element of it and also the um, situation where he triple bogeys on what was the whole 14 was it on the final day of the, the Masters maybe it was a bit earlier than that just how that kind of was a complete pressure valve release for him yeah. he was like well that's it that's the whole thing screw it up now at this point and he could play a little bit freer just relaxed exactly yeah out. so that was probably the one of the, the bigger insights we got into the final day of the Masters I, I'm just curious if, if it actually did change post rush but um mm. looking at that yeah that bit stood out to me as well as, as timmy there um paulie did ask him you know what stage did it end at what stage during that final round were you home and I, I remember watching it and you know the way he came up to 17 18th with a big smile on his face and it was as if he, he said he spoke to his caddy and said god let's just soak this up let's this is what we've always dreamed of and he looked like he really just really enjoyed it there was no stress he played the flop shot like it was just practicing out the back like paddy did many years before that um 
but in this interview, he says uh, not until the very end um, did he think, you know, I'm home. Maybe it was the 18th um, fairway. And he said, I'm sure Scotty said the same. It's the best day of your life, but it's the most horrible as well. It's so unenjoyable. It's not even funny. But then when it's over, you look back and think that was amazing. And I think, you know, what Paul does really well here is he's obviously built up these relationships with with the golfers because, um, you know, golf is, is an interesting beat to be on. You get to travel around and spend a lot of time in and out of the um, the marquees with the players. And it, it's kind of a smaller pocket of journalists that, that travel around the world and travel to the big tournaments. And you get to know the golfers. You might get a bit more access than you do in soccer or rugby these days. Um, I've covered a few tournaments, the Ryder Cup Irish Opens, and, you know, the players will always be brought into the, the big tent after their round. So it's nearly like you'll, you'll speak to them four or five, six times a week. So this is why you get such great access, um, especially Paul having built up these relationships and the chats that you get with Shane. I, I often found, even just talking to mates or other journalists, you know, talking about him being relatable is, sometimes feels a bit insulting almost to say, you know, he's just ah, he's just an ordinary Offaly man and he's, he's every man and, you know, we can relate to him. He's so ordinary. And, you know, sometimes people think that just because he has a bit of weight in him as well. It feels a bit insulting sometimes, but reading through this, it does seem that he is, it, it just kind of reinforces it almost. It, it means, it makes me feel that my initial thoughts on who Shane Lowry might be weren't all that far off. And he just does come across as a lad who, like you or me, who maybe dreamt of becoming a professional athlete or sports player, what we'd do if we got to that stage. And he seems to do it. You know, he talks about moving to Jupiter. I had a friend who lived in Jupiter or in Florida in the late 90s. And there were some golfers living nearby. And I thought, God, imagine being a golfer. And this is where you go. And you all hang out in the same area in a gated community. And he's talking about living there now. And the kid, um, Ivy, has a little American twang. And he mm. talks about having, you know, the pool out the back and uh, pinching himself and going, geez, how did I end up here? You know, that's just his house. Um, but he's living the life and he's living in that community. And he, he goes down to the Bears course in, in Florida there near West Palm Beach. And he'd see Jack Nicholas or, or um, Gary Player. And then Dustin Johnson turns up. So he's living that life. And it does seem like it's so alien to him in a way because he's so down to earth. But um, there's another little snippet there about him. Um, what, what about your place in history? Um, you know, he was talking about the stature, how, how stature, changed, stature changed after winning the Open. And Paul says, what about your name on the claret jug? And he goes, yeah, that's pretty cool, to be fair. And to have the actual claret jug in your house, I used to keep it on the island in the kitchen. And Paul says, like Padraig. And he goes, yeah, it nearly hits you in the face when you walk into his house. After a few months, the sense of, oh, my God, wears off. But the coolest thing is the look on people's faces that see it for the first time. I've showed it to people that have cried. <laughs> So he really gives a good, great relaxed insight into so much here. And there's that little bit about talking about playing with Tiger Woods. You know, he eventually played with Tiger Woods and it wasn't until 2020 that he did. Um, and of course, Tiger's, you know, so old now. It's, it's a bit like, you know, Anthony Alanga playing with um, Ronaldo or something uh, in soccer. But he, he talks with just joy, childish joy about playing with Tiger and what he learned there. Um, and how we, you know, we learned from Tiger slipping up in the last round in the Masters, and it's it's a little unfortunate we didn't have that Disney finish, you know, with yeah. with, with um, Shane coming back to do it at the Masters. But it doesn't look like he's going to be too far away in the future, and and it, it's he, yeah, it reads very confidently. He's, he seems to be a man comfortable within himself, happy with where where things are going, and even hungrier to to progress. So it's a great read, and it's a great insight from a, a player who seems very relaxed within himself and, and happy to talk. Very confident, so like, and I think that, as you say, yeah. because of the the very kind of affable um, personality that he is, um, yeah. maybe that's doing him complete injustice. Maybe that's not how you describe him at all. But certainly, a very friendly character. Uh, you sometimes disassociate that from the real cold blooded killers that you need to be to be a top level competitor, and that's exactly what it is, and uh, what yeah. he is, and and it comes with you know, we we saw it in terms of you know the, the reaction to to Bo when uh, he had the wrong club on day three of the Masters this year. We see it here in the confidence when he talks about the Ryder Cup. He says, to be honest, I personally thought that no matter who was the captain, that I deserved a pick. Yeah, he's he's annoyed that Padraig Harrington uh, kind of left him wait around long enough on the Sunday evening where he announces wildcard picks for last year's Ryder Cup. So. That definitely jumps off the page. What, what? That, that bit there, oh, and actually, just quickly, um, without swearing, I love the way, like, you know you know, a player or a golfer or any, any athlete is confident when he, you know, drops the F-bomb in an interview. Mm. And he says, uh, you know, about Padraig, he said, I had to wait around in Wentworth that Sunday evening in case I got told I was being picked. And when, when Harrington eventually did, he came into the room and, and um, Shane said, you effing left me long enough. Yeah. You know, which is great because he's obviously completely confident in himself and it wasn't sitting there 
biting his nails or whatever. He just like, he was like, yeah, I'm going on this. He deserved and to be he there. He knew it. Yeah. Yeah, what's, right, we move along. There's too much sport, what, isn't there? What's, about one. Well, we'll move on. Just one final thing on this is like, it's it's been very, very interesting to kind of the, the stories around Shane Larry this year. It's obviously been a brilliant couple of weeks, really, when you consider the, the finish as well at, um, in, in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago as well. So that, that's been the golf element. But there, Shane Larry was asked quite a bit about the, the Saudi Arabian uh, golf events over this course of January, wasn't it? And uh, the, the attempts to sport wash with regards to Saudi Arabia obviously it's come up in Formula 1 it's come up with Newcastle United and he said obviously there's no hiding from the people writing about this tournament or what they're saying about us going to play but at the end of the day for me I'm not a politician I'm a professional golfer I earn a living for myself and my family and trying to take care of those and this is just part of that I'm happy to go there I'm happy to earn my living going there and going playing good golf and hopefully hopefully win a tournament so that was what Larry said in, in January of this year you would have li- liked to have seen Paul Kimmage actually ask um, Shane Larry about that about the reaction to it because there was a bit of a, a blowback to it um, I'm not sure what the, the situation would have been what, what Larry would have said but it's certainly something that I would have kept reading were he to be asked about it yeah, and it, it, it's it's an interesting omission, you know, when you consider the the sensational situation with Mickelson, who can't even attend the Masters, you know, about comments he made when we go back in, in that. And, you know, because he talked about, you know, a lot of stuff over, over the two weeks, but, it, you know, it, it just was an, an omission. Now, whether it was a deliberate omission, whether it was a, something that was discussed and wasn't put in, we obviously won't know in, in that sense. But, you know, what I like about Laurie's answer is, like, when he was asked about it previously, he's a professional, so he's going to he, his job is to earn money. That's what is you know pay pay his sport and earn money and obviously win along the way if he can. So, you know, he didn't get into the politics, which I thought was the right thing. I mean, for him, he's a player, and if, you know, if he is invited to play places, but do I see him give up the PGA tour? No, I don't. I mean, I think that you know that this that's where you know like you talk about here on talk about Jupiter earlier. That's where these guys, you know, see that the, the future of the game, and you know, it'll be interesting to see what will happen with with, with, with the tour of, um, in Saudi Arabia. But I just think that you know, for Laurie, you know, his answer was, "Look, I'm a professional," and we're obviously mixed and gave different answers in that sense. One other thing I thought was interesting, though, and Kieran touched it in in this piece. The final for me piece was that he said, "I learned from Tiger," and I thought it was even for all of us who you know who play sport or play golf, and you know, like Tiger had a ten on the twelfth. And both Bordy five of the next six holes, and like Laurie said, he didn't give up at any shot. He says, right? Okay. He, he said, I, I was here. Was I lucky at this guy who's, in Laurie's opinion, the greatest of all time, and in my opinion, the greatest of all time. And he didn't give up on any shot, even though he had just had, you know, a, a, a ten. And you know, if you think of other players, and you know, and, and many of us would give up after a double bogey or triple bogey. And that's the, the fact that Laurie was still prepared to learn, even though at that point in time. He was obviously an open champion. I just thought it was a great sentiment Absolutely. of where he is mentally in the game. Isn't it? Absolutely. So that, that's part two of the Shane Lowry interview. It's in the Sunday Independent this morning. Uh, as you say, Kieran, there's a, a ton of other stuff we want to get stuck into. We're going to touch on uh, rugby at the moment. And um, if you're with us live on our social channels, you can leave a comment, by the way, on YouTube or tweet us at Off The Ball. Uh, we are, what, nine minutes into the game between England and Ireland in the Six Nations. England leading 10-0 at the moment in that game. It was always going to be of an uphill uh, task today, to say the very least, Kieran, There's been a couple of really interesting pieces done in the papers this morning, not least by Bernard Jackman in the Sunday Independent and Stephen Jones in the Sunday Times. Uh, It's Crow Patrick and flip-flops on a crap day is how Brendan Fanning describes today's fixture. But there's a wider conversation to be had here around Irish women's rugby, obviously, but also when it comes to the importance of the sevens that the IRFU are, are currently placing on at the moment. Yeah, it's only ten. It's only ten nil, is it? Currently, yeah. So point per minute, yeah. And there were there were warnings. I think um, Brendan Fanning suggested uh, they might surpass seventy nine nil that England uh, inflicted in two thousand and two on an Irish side. I don't remember that um, scoreline, but it's pretty harrowing. Um, and they're on they're on target for that kind of scoreline. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows, but the the women's team have the the fifteen player team. Uh, playing in the Six Nations have been um, ripped apart by players going on the Sevens Tour um, and some of their best players basically are off playing the Sevens. Um, it's just a conflict really, isn't it? It's 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 not really an issue in the men's game because there's such a depth of players and the, the Sevens team are seen as uh, 
a development squad, you know, for, I mean, they're a team of their, of, in and of themselves and it's got your Olympic qualification now. So there is some extra funding there as well. Mm. And it's seen as something to bring players through, you know, especially in the backs. We have Robert Balakoon played through the sevens. He's come through into the senior level at Ulster and Ireland. Um, Hugh O'Keenan, most, most notably, um, I remember going to Monday meetings at Leinster where you get the players and coaches put up in front of you. And when Hugo Keenan would come in, um, with all respect, we used to think, you know, he's one of the fringe players who will get, you know, those games for for Leinster, but won't ever kick on into the Ireland team because he's in the sevens. And you'd think automatically, you know, perhaps wrongly um, or sometimes correctly, that if you're out in the sevens, you're kind of, you're a good way away from from making the senior 15s. But I think he's maybe the exception that, that, may, that proves the rule, really. He's kicked on and made an incredible career for himself at the senior level. It's, just, it's astonishing, really. Um, but when you have the Six Nations scheduled at the same time as the, the women's game in the, in the sevens, it's just a big problem. And especially for Ireland, who don't have the depth of, of talent. And um, Stephen Jones, I mean, to have Stephen Jones talking about Ireland um, in, in a slightly negative light is not a surprise in the mm. Sunday Times. But the fact that he's doing about the women's game is interesting so he kind of he spoke up about how you know the 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 um the, he says that the rugby in ireland so he thought was transformed by the brave actions of members of the, the women's squad and retired greats they were so incensed by shocking treatment at the hands of the irish rugby union that they took their complaints to the irish government they detailed all the abuses of proper preparation that some had to change outside by rat, rat infested dustbins about the day when all the toilets were locked and so on they won hands down uh, set out to start their new life, as impecunious as before, perhaps, but no longer tra- treated like stray, stray dogs. Then last week, we found out that seven Irish players, including the Hallback three and both centres, would not be playing today against England. They've all opted to play sevens in Canada or been told to opt by the Irish Rugby Union. Reports differ. So he talks about, you know, sevens. And when he went to Hong Kong as a, as a young journalist, the Hong Kong sevens was a famous. It's a bit of a piss up, really. It's like a giant stag party with rugby jerseys thrown in. Um and he talks about, you know, the, the the whizzing action running along in front of you. And he says, but the notion that sevens is some kind of valid development vehicle for the top professional professional ranks, even for international rugby, is ludicrous. Yeah. He says the sevens at the Olympics is clearly massive into the credit of the world rugby. They, they fought to bring it into the uh, Olympic movement, which replaces considerable funding for the sport in countries where Olympics are prioritised above anything else. Um, so, like, he's asking that question, and it seems to be, you know, in Ireland that we've taken the the kind of Kool-Aid and thought, well, you get funding, you'll get Sport Ireland funding. There's smaller numbers, so it's easier to put teams together. Um, but for Jones, I, I, I kind of tend to agree with Jones. I think that, you know, putting that much money and time into the sevens to think that it is the development vehicle for the top professional ranks probably isn't borne out by any great facts. Um, I think the Irish... Um, What's, what's your man's name? David Nusifora kind of came in and, and, and said, I think that Brennan's mentioned him there, that he, he he sees the Sevens as being a really decent bed to um, develop players in. And maybe that's, it's an easier win for the women's game because we've smaller numbers. You know, myself and Timmy were talking before, like in England, where England and France are running away with the Six Nations, but they have so many more players. They've got professional leagues. Um, they don't, they might have netball and hockey and soccer competing, but like in Ireland, I think the GAA probably snaps up so many young Irish girls who want to play sport and to get the numbers up for rugby uh, for a sevens and a 15 is just difficult. And we'll probably see in the next hour what that scoreline ends up being. Now that's a snapshot. Obviously things will change, but to have them both on at the same time, especially for a country like ours, it's just, it's not ideal at all. And I think Stephen Jones questioning that is, is worth listening to, to be honest. That, that scoreline has gone back to 5 0, by the way. The try was ruled out for England. Oh, and, uh, oh, Arnold, we're good. We're grand, though. We're grand. That's it, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Ireland have also won a scrum penalty as well uh, after uh, seven minutes with their own put in to the scrum. So um, I know it's uh, a, lot of, a lot of the say. backs that are missing uh, today, obviously, for Ireland who are who are with the sevens. Uh, we, Kieran, we might just like uh, tip on briefly then to Neil Francis's piece in the Sunday Times because. He like he doesn't necessarily uh, put the crux of it on the idea of life bans for high tackles, but certainly his last sentence of his piece, which is about a number of different tackles that we've seen in the Champions Cup over the last few weeks. He says, World Rugby needs to introduce savage suspensions for foul play and life bans for serial offenders. Otherwise, the sort of unacceptable practice on the pitch will never be successfully tackled. So 
he's talking about Bundyaki on Johnny Sexton at the Aviva Stadium. He mentions an incident between Tom Daly and Kieran Frawley at the sports ground earlier this season, the one that Leinster won uh, 45-8. And Daly got three weeks for the tackle. He says he should not have played again this season. He says in the last quarter of the Aviva game, Abraham Papali ends up in the pitch. This player has three red cards in the space of nine months. What on earth is he doing on a rugby field? Later in the weekend, Tolu Latu lines out for a stat Francais against uh, Racing 92. He's got six yellows, two reds this season. Quite an achievement and he only gets 11 weeks. Why are these players allowed on a rugby field? He asks. So he's uh, really hitting the, the, the extreme level here, which I'm sure some people will agree with, that there can be no forgiveness for these sort of tackles. But the quite reasonable counterpoint to it all is that how do you prove the, the sort of malice in all of these tackles and and if you are not showing malice in these tackles how can you slap down such a severe ban like a season ban a life ban yeah I read through all of this and, and for, for a second just before I got to the very end I thought god the headline writers killed him here but it wasn't until the very last paragraph that it says World Rugby needs to introduce savage suspensions and life bans for serial offenders um yeah, it's a curious one because uh, sometimes people might think that Neil Francis would be part of the group of people who say the game's gone, you know, if there's a if there's a strong tackle and somebody gets a yellow card. But I think some of the questioning here is, you know, and, and like Neil's actually saying it, if, even if he doesn't think he is, but the, the referee's interpretation and the calls and the assistance from the TMOs is kind of what's in question sometimes here. Um, those punishments off the pitch you know, we all, it's always like listening to um, uh, legal counsel sometimes when you're with rugby, you know, the way you get an email sent out saying somebody's been cited and, you know, we've got QCs involved and all this kind of crap. And you think sometimes they, they really do go into it with a stiffer lip a little bit too much on the Wednesday following a bad red card tackle. And they speak about, you know, how well he did at school when he was a child and, you know, he patted your man on the back and expressed remorse. And those things have to stop. If you're going to be pulling off these tackles, I mean, just... Yeah, I know, Owen, I'd agree with you. you. You don't always know intent, but, you know, we've taken intent out of the, the, the laws in some circumstances. Like if it's a player in the air and you hit them from beneath, your intent doesn't matter. It's the damage that you're caused. And for too long, there was a focus on the outcome rather than the actual intent. But I think there's still space for focusing on the outcome and saying if that's been done and it's a high head tackle, um, they do have to be punished. I think, you know, life bans... I don't know, where do you stop serial offenders? Where does serial start? Where does it end? Um, but I think this has been, like, there's been a lot of focus on this in the last couple of years. I don't know if it's starting to slip a bit. I don't know, um, like, players are being coached and told more and more about, you know, aim lower, aim lower, keep it down, don't be diving in with your head. I think we saw in the Leinster game yesterday, one of the South African players basically turned himself into a, into a, into a flying rocket and went head first into a clear out. And it's still happening. So it's not getting through. I don't think life bans will ever happen, to be honest. I think it'll have to be something incredibly serious on the pitch for that to happen. Yeah. I know sometimes in soccer, we've had custodial sentences where players have ended up in court over tackles or punches or whatever. But rugby really seems to try and steer itself away from that and yeah. to deal with being decent on the pitch. But um, I think the general gist of it is good. But I don't know how we'll get to the stage where that is introduced. The the glamour of bans, suspensions, courtroom <laughs> rulings on players extends its tentacles into GEA as well, Timmy. Uh, Mark O'Shea in the Mail on Sunday today goes with uh, take a wrecking ball to this shambolic process. At least that's what the headline is on his piece today. There's no prizes for guessing what it's about. It's about uh, Armagh appealing to get their players off the leash for today's Ulster Championship game against Donegal. Donegal not appealing and uh, Donegal not having their players available and Armagh having all of their players available. A couple of loopholes, a couple of uh, technicalities that Armagh managed to find and identify and that uh, they're at, at a greater strength now as a result of, of what's happened. Uh, what's your take on this Marco Shea piece, Timmy? Well, if you if you take it in conjunction with the last piece we were just talking about, the Neil Francis piece, it's actually interesting because he says actually the GA should adopt a, a straightforward mm-hmm. citing system, so, which is interesting. First of all, it, it was, it's, it's a very honest assessment of the fact that there's too many loopholes Right now, he did actually say, openly and honestly, that you know he availed of the loophole. You know, I mean, he actually said that he was told by a, a, a Tyrone man whose name I can't recall, which I thought was a great way of saying I can't mention the guy who told me this, but he said that um, don't mention the word shoulder, stress side to side. So he was out, he was sent off against Cork in the Munster semi final, and um, he's his Mark Shea says I ran into Cork's Ron O'Brien 
which was an accidental collision, but he got a red card, which he believed was very harsh. And I remember at the time, I thought it was harsh. I actually did be watching it. It was, um, it was a harsh um, red card. But he was then obviously appealing it. So he went and got this man from Tyrone, gave me advice. Don't say it was a shoulder. Because typically you say it was a shoulder to shoulder charge. And um, so he said side to side. And um, basically he was at the first toll boot on the motorway. He described when the county secretary rang to say it had been clear. Then the relief and the elation, et cetera. So, so Mark took advantage of the system in that sense, right? And now he's obviously saying that, you know, it's now a shambolic process. So, you know, like what happened with the Armagh situation, I mean, I, first of all, the Ryan O'Neill one, where the video was sent to the Central Council before the referee had seen it, and that was the technicality. It looks to be very sort of loose in, in that sense. And then the other three guys, obviously, since in the Armagh. So it, in any sport, the disciplinary process is very difficult because once you have a situation where you can appeal something, um, then you're, you're, you're then bringing in potential QCs, barristers, etc. In, in that sense, so it's a very difficult situation, and I believe that the GA has, over the last number of years, continued to struggle with this. Yeah. Okay. The reality is that you know, if you do something wrong, you should get punished. If it is proven you did something wrong, you should get punished, and it's as simple as that in reality. And what we tend to do is we tend to say in sport, "I wish you look, it's only sports, it's only GA, or it's only soccer, or it's only rugby," and you know, it's. It's um, part-time or it's amateur in a GS sense from that point of view. So we tend to have a, you know, a, a very loose opinion on it, in my view. My view was always very simple in sport. You play to the rules you, and you, you, you stretch to the rules as far as they're legally stretched. But if you infringe them, you get penalized. And that's just the reality. So I was surprised when I started, when I heard the decision about the Armagh players getting back in. And now they go into the game with their full squad, whereas you said, oh, and Danny Ball going. So... Mark O'Shea, you know, he sets up nicely with his own story, okay? Because the, the one thing about his own story, which is different though, he was sent off incorrectly. You know, he didn't deserve a red card. That's the that's an important twist. Like, even though he did say he used it side to side to get off with it, but he was sent off, you know, it was a bit like Tony Davis in the All-Ireland final many years against Derry. You know, he was sent off, you know, for, for a tackle that he didn't commit. So it was just, you know, like him getting his, his red card rescinded was the correct decision. I'm not sure if on the technicalities of the other one, that's the correct way to go. But look, I'm our one catering against any goal. But the G have struggled with this. And now we see from Neil Francis coming, rugby are struggling with it. And you know, this. Um, I think, you know, like the English system is very interesting. They could, they, they, they soccer, you know, if you get a, two yellow cards in one game, you get a one game suspension. If you get a red card, you get three games. So there's a definitive penalty. Yeah. And there's no ifs or buts, you know. So so maybe both sports, GA as we're talking about here and rugby, should look at, you know, if you get a yellow card, there is a penalty for that in, in some future game. And if you get a red card, it is defined. So therefore, you know, it won't change the severity of the tackles, but it will mean that the punishment is clear. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm against the citing thing, because if you, as Kieran explained, you know, the citing becomes just, you know, legal hogwash at times in that sense, you know, and some people are supposed to get six weeks and get three weeks and 12 weeks, get eight weeks and some get nothing. So I just believe have a, have a very simple policy, break the rules. These are the penalties and there's no appeal. These are the penalties. He, he, do, he does reckon that it's not necessarily going to be an automatic win for Armagh on the day. He mentions that he played poorly after he got off his red card in that Munster final. He mentions 2014 when Lee Keegan got a red card in the drawn semi-final. He didn't play very well in the replay. He mentions Dimer Connolly. Everybody remembers him getting off on the, the Friday night before the Mayo replay in 2015 and that actually you might struggle to remember how well he played in it. So that this can actually really set a player back. It can really distract a player and I don't know, Rian O'Neill is a player of such quality. Even if he's distracted, he's probably going to kick uh, a fair score tally today anyway. But it will be interesting to see how, how Amar actually deal with that sense of you know being distracted on the disciplinary level over the last little while. And Owen, I, I, I have the personal experience of that. So I coached three um, in the late 90s to win the first ever Super League title. And um, we then qualified for the national championship playoff at the end. But we were, just, we were the champions. And then there's a, a, a national championship at the end. So if we went in as high favourites, obviously. But the week before, our one of our star American players, Ricardo Leonard, got sent off in the game for you know for verbal abuse of the referee. So he was suspended for the championship. And what we did was we appealed it, you know. So we appealed it because, and we spent the whole afternoon on Saturday in a hotel in Cork appealing this um, suspension. And you know, uh, we were playing Saturday night, and we won the appeal. Because, you know, what, what she reported was we had evidence that wasn't actually what was said. So there was a, 
But the problem was, Ricardo was awful on Sacrament. So psychologically, the relief of coming off the appeal just interfered with his performance. It was just, you know, and and like Marco Shea talks about it here, a number of players in similar situations, you know, have you know got off with you know with, with the sentence and have not performed. So that would be interesting to see how the Armagh players, you know, I think they'll perform. I believe they will perform today in that sense. But I, I have seen it, you know, work against you. You know, when you when you get the player off, and then you know psychologically they can't get themselves to the level that you need to for the for the game, and we eventually lost that game uh, because of one of those factors. Just very briefly, I just want to touch on a couple of other stories to wrap up on the GEA front. Looking after number one is the headline on page eight and nine of the Sunday Independent. Tommy Conlon has done a bit of a deep dive into the development of goalkeepers. Yes, it's a subject that's been covered quite a bit this season and over the last little while, but there's new bits and pieces in it. He's uh, spoken to Shane Curran. Uh, he has spoken to, to Gary Rogers, of course, uh, a goalkeeping coach now formerly of Dundalk uh, and a few other people in this piece as well to give a, a decent insight to the developments that have been happening in the past, even pre Cluxton. I'm not sure. Do you want to pick this up, Kieran? What, what picked out? What stuck out to you from this piece? Yeah, I, th- I think it's. I think it's. It's very interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I played guy when I was a young kid, but wouldn't have watched it too much and wouldn't have worked professionally at it. But um, I remember a couple of friends talking about Stephen Cluxton and how he's changing the game, and I remember thinking cynically, you know, he's a goalkeeper. How's he done that? What are you talking about? And then I got a ticket to an All Ireland final. I know I shouldn't have been allowed to be there. I took it from somebody more worthy. But I'm sitting behind the goal and I'm watching Cluxton, and it's like he's taking a you know an eight wedge, an eight iron out of his golf bag and pick, pinging it out in the wings. And I'm thinking, God, that my mate was actually speaking sense. And this is interesting to read. And it's for me again coming from more of a soccer background. It's interesting in how it's it's kind of mimicking or they're both just going finding that path as soccer. You know, with the the, the emphasis nowadays on on how goalkeepers have to be able to play out from the back and they're an integral part to an attacking setup so the, the attack starts so deep and I think um, I think Tommy does a good job of, of kind of charting its its evolution and, and getting a few different insights from different coaches and you know how it was looked down upon and and again you know there's another little element here he says the downside for Curran that's Shane Curran of the, rev- of the revolution is that it's producing goalkeepers who are better footballers than netminders yeah. the fundamental defensive duties are in danger of being neglected in the rush to find ball playing custodians we are seeing he says examples of goals being conceded where a good specialist goalkeeper wouldn't allow them to be conceded and I was thinking of last week of Man City's game against Liverpool and you know I, I kind of I often tweet I'm like how, how can you get to be an elite level goalkeeper professional soccer and not just do the basics properly the amount of time they miscontrol it can't do a short pass, can't pass it out. Um, so sometimes I'm wondering how many goals will that over the next 10 years will be conceded by goalkeepers trying to do stuff they're not really equipped to do. And that's an interesting thing from Curran there. And I do wonder um, if GA is actually better built for this because, I mean, he does say specialist goalkeepers there and he says close to 80% of goals a good specialist goalkeeper would have stopped them is what he saw in the National League. In that's interesting, League. isn't it? Like I, that, that really stuck out to me that he, he went through 20 goals that were conceded and he reckons that the quality of goalkeeping is of such a level now that the, the, these goals should be being stopped. So it's, yeah. like, I mean, that that's obviously a, a subjective opinion but at the same time yeah. I, like it's it's this balance that we, we now have to, to weigh up between you know Rory Began coming up to pitch against Tyrone in the first round of the National League this year and kicking a point from play I think it was his first score from play uh, for Monaghan and you know Rory Began getting chipped um, by Kerry players in the game and in the scheme four or five six weeks later and it's a fascinating one I actually I'm not, I'm not convinced that we have an answer <laughs> to this but like uh, what, what's short it? term isn't it yeah. we, we only have a small kind of sample but the 20 goals and 80% I was like whoa that's that's crazy because yeah. you think you know Gaelic anybody can drop back into the nets and use their hands so why would it be that bad but it is about positioning I suppose it's about it's about expecting you know certain moves from attackers so I'd love to see that actually I'd love to see more of analysis on that and how you know 80% so what's that 16 goals it should have been saved it's, it is an interesting stat but it's, it's good it's a good insight into part of a wider um, trend it's mad like it um Tommy Conlon mentions in 2010 the GA changed the rules so that all kickouts be taken from the 13 metre line that was uh, yeah. not, not a massive deal but it was, it was a very noticeable development at the time then also the kicking tee was brought in in 2005 and then also you've got the advent of maybe more withdrawn defences as well so it, this isn't just some random thing that has kind of appeared out of nowhere Timmy there has been mm-hmm. a number of different steps to this phase where we're looking at these goalkeepers as massive parts of the attack now Absolutely. And the kicking tee is a big change. The fact that you can tee the ball up and, and you know, it gives you, like, it gives you elevation. It gives you the chance to ping the ball, you know, which is something that, you know, would be more of a soccer description in that sense. 
you know, I, I've coached Bridges actually Shane Corden's club and Seamus the goalkeeper when Bridges won the Ireland I coached him a couple of years ago to win the senior county in uh, Roscommon and James Martin, an excellent goalkeeper. And I would say to him, there was three things a goalkeeper has to have. You know, in the modern game, it has to be to kick the ball. Okay, so you, you can't, because everything happens now, kickouts are very important and where they go and that's it. Secondly, he must be able to catch the high ball. And that's one thing that, you know, not every goalkeeper can actually do. And the third thing is, they must be good shot stoppers. I mean, they must be able to stop the shot. If you have those three things, you can be a really top-class goalkeeper. So I do believe that the T was a big change. The 30 metres, are, 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 that was not as big. I thought the fact that the kicking tee. But what I, what, what I do find interesting, though, is if, if you have your keeper coming out, you know, and, and sorting out and, and, and trying to score from play, well, then you have to make sure you have a system where somebody goes back and goal like because that is that you know you have to have a system to revert in that sense. But the evolution of goalkeepers in GA, and I thought Tommy, you know, captured it here in that sense, um, was not just with Cluxton. I think that was one of the big things I took out from this. It was pre-Cluxton. Cluxton brought it to another level. You got to give Cluxton, but he brought it to the next level. But yeah. like to Shane Corden, you know, we're, we're, we're doing some of this stuff before that in that sense. I think the evolution of goalkeepers in soccer are similar. I mean, I, I, Chelsea have had, my, my team have had nightmares in the last couple of weeks by Mendy not being able to kick the ball, okay, or, or pass the ball. And, and, you know, we go to the Champions League because of it and lose a couple of league games. So it is now a requirement that goalkeepers can kick the ball. And in a GA sense, because the importance of the kickouts have become so important because withdrawn defences or the defences that push up, you know, uh, full on the, on, on the kickouts, you really have to have somebody who can kick the ball. And that's the big change because, you know, Shane Curran talked about, you know, at times where there was goalkeepers, you know, couldn't kick the ball. The fullback had to kick it out for him in, in, in olden yeah. days. Like, so it has become a big thing now. And I think that the ultimately, though, they're a goalkeeper. we got to keep that. And I, he, he used the word specialist. They must be able to stop shots and catch a high ball. That's the fundamental thing. And now the evolution of GA for them is that they must be able to kick the ball as well and kick it accurately and precisely. And that's a big development, I think, for many goalkeepers. Absolutely. So that's uh, Tommy Conlon's piece in the Sunday Independent today. Uh, we are almost out of time, but we did want to just mention quickly some of the boxing pieces that are in the papers today. Uh, Shane McGrath uh, has written about Daniel Kinahan and his connection with the world of boxing. Obviously, Tyson Fury was uh, in action last night. He got the win against Dillian White. That's on page 62 of the Mail. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of like a, a mention of, you know, the... The, the shadow that the Kinahan involvement will have on sport not just in boxing as a global sport but especially in Ireland for obvious reasons I mean we've got a massive Katie Taylor fight next week in the Garden which is going to be a fantastic occasion but because of certain links between boxing and, and organised crime in Ireland there may well be a full professional career of one of Ireland's greatest sports people who may never have a professional fight in Ireland as a result of that which is which is kind of a, a really terrible consequence one of a number of terrible consequences of it and it is that fight that's covered in quite a few of the papers as well Mick Foley's writing about it in the Sunday Times Mark Gallagher's on a two page spread in the mail on it as well the story of Amanda Serrano is fascinating the Jake Paul element is fascinating uh, Kieran, you might just wrap this up very briefly for us what's the most interesting thing that that you picked up from from the reading about next week's fight yeah well I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't judge most interesting or otherwise um I've only read a couple of them but I, I did like um Mick Foley's piece where he kind of broke it down into 10 rounds you know the progression of um well women's boxing allied with Katie Taylor's career there and how it's kind of culminated in this and he does a lot of interesting bits you know starting off from the famous kind of text from Katie Taylor to Eddie Hearn where, where she said, hi, Eddie, I don't, hope you don't mind me reaching out like this, you know, out of the blue, when, when she was kind of looking for a, a professional contract. Up to now, you know, now Katie Taylor's asking him, you know, a couple of years back, should I be getting more money? And he says, now we've reached that point, Katie's making a lot more money than a lot of male world champions. It's still not where it should be, but I'll get there. Um, and now she's, she and um, Serrano are going to be making, you know, seven, did, seven figure sums for this. Um, I kind of like reading about it from that side a week out, but then it's also interesting to read some of the elements. I think in, in the mail there, some of the, the pros are are giving, tipping Serrano, you know, and, and it's nice to actually just talk about it as the contest in itself, rather than having to put it in the context of, you know, what Katie is carrying on her shoulder for all the females out there in sport. It's nice to just think of it as a contest at the top level. And um, I'm a little bit worried that this might be a step too far for her. I don't know how you guys feel if she's favourite or otherwise. It's good to have Irish boxing in, in, the, in the headlines in a positive way. I think it'll be the perfect antidote 
to everything else that we've been hearing about on the male side of things. So it is it is a wholesome story there for next week and to have a, a huge crowd. And I don't know what time it'll be on, but I think a lot of Ireland will be staying up just like they might do for a Conor McGregor fight or a Steve Collins fight back in the day. But yeah, Serrano's power, her strength um, allied with Katie Taylor having a few close fights in the last few. It's uh, I don't know if it'll have the the Disneyland ending that it might otherwise have had. Yeah, one way or another, Timmy, it is just this f- fascinating battle between two fighters at the very top of their game. And Mark Gallagher in that piece says, uh, rarer to have the two top pound-for-pound boxers on the planet inside the same ring. It hasn't happened in men's boxing, he says, since 2008, when Manny Pacquiao clashed with Miguel Cotto. Like, that is the other element of, of boxing, other than some of the, the murky links, is just the really annoying politics that prevents fans from getting the best fights out there hasn't stopped this happening in, in the women's game, thankfully, in this occasion. No, and it's it's a huge fight. I mean, it's it's the ultimate for, for both of them, really. I mean, when you think of both of their careers and where they've both come from, it actually is the ultimate. And, you know, I, I would assume if you're a boxer, Madison Square Garden is the place you want to head on. I would assume that, you know, if, if you think of all the greats, you know, of, of the boxing world, that was the all, they all talk of Madison Square Garden as being the, the special place, okay? And, you know, so... The fact that they are now going to be headlining, you know, in Massachusetts Gardens next half of night is is a dream come true for both of them. Obviously, the winner takes all, and that's what this is about. I hope it's not a step too far for Kelly Taylor. I think that, you know, it would be, you know, Kieran describes it, the Disneyland finish. It would be a brilliant finish um, to, you know, put a final stamp on what has been an incredible career, you know, to, to date in that sense. I don't believe it'd be our last fight, but I do believe that, you know, if she if she can win this, she might have a few more just to get paydays, but this, you know, this is really the biggest test she's probably ever had to face. But then it's the biggest test Serrano has ever had to face. So, you know, it is really, you know, the two best powerful bone boxers, you know, in the planet at the moment. They're coming together in the biggest boxing arena, um, and it's just something that you know I look forward to seeing and hopefully getting the right results, uh, which is a, a big sweep for Katie. Yeah, it's going to be a great occasion next Saturday. We'll have plenty of build-up on Off the Ball as well over the course of the week, looking ahead to that huge fight. Uh, you've been listening to or watching the Sunday papers over the course of the last hour. Timmy McCarthy and Kieran Ratlig have been with me. Lads, thanks a million. Appreciate it. Thanks Good to see you. See you, Kieran. The Sunday papers on Off the Ball.